0: It's an honor to have Dr. Easley here with us uh, this morning. He was my a New Testament professor in seminary. And uh, God used him and, and used his class and his books, that the many books that we were assigned to read in his class, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a big way in my life. It, I learned how to make connections in the Scripture the way I, I never had before. And I also learned that Christ is not someone who just shows up in a barn in Bethlehem, but He's the central figure throughout the Scriptures. I learned that every book in this book speaks Christ's name. Every writing points to Him. So He was very influential in my life, and He's currently uh, the professor of biblical studies and the uh, director of the School of Theology and Missions Programs at Union University. Uh, he got his uh, bachelor's degree from John Brown University in Arkansas, and uh, his master's from Trinity, and his PhD right down the road at uh, Southwestern Seminary. And he's written many books. There are two on sale in the four-year today. The Community of Jesus is, is his newest one on the theology of the church. And then uh, there's, he wrote a commentary, a Holman New Testament commentary on the book of Revelation, which is on sale because we're going to be having a study through Revelation. He's going to be with us tomorrow night. And he's also written many other books. Our FBU class is going through the illustrated guide to biblical history. And he's here with us this morning to walk us through the Bible. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Kendall Easley. Dr. Easley.
1: Wow, it is a pleasure for me to be here. How's the sound? Is this good? Are we good? All right, good. It's a have pl- been looking forward to this for so many months now. It was several months ago. Uh, the pastor and I started emailing about whether it would be possible for me to come, and it was just wonderful last night at the Tyler Airport. It was the first time we'd been face-to-face since 2005 when Graham was one of my students, and then I moved on to another institution, so it's really exciting for me to be here. Let me find out how many of you would rather be here this morning than a patient in the finest hospital in East Texas. all right, all right. so i got some folks that are that are glad to be in worship this morning. It has really you've welcomed me. I've had a great uh, first night, and uh, you've hosted me well and uh, I sense the presence of God's spirit here. It's amazing how, as I have an opportunity. Uh, to travel from church to church to sense the Spirit of God at work. And one of the great opportunities that I have now, you can tell that I've taught for a few years. I'm actually in my 34th year full-time teaching. Uh, but my one of the real joys that God gives me is an opportunity to uh, minister in the churches where my former students have been. So it's a real joy and a treat for me to see how God has has placed uh, Graham in ministry. We got caught up on the drive last night. Kind of, I learned of his story and he learned of my story in the last nine years and so on. Uh, For for those of y'all that uh, don't know, is it okay for me to say y'all? Are y'all a y'all church? All right. In Tennessee we are. Uh, Anyway, um, for those of y'all that want to know about his life before he came here, for $20 after church... Uh, I'll, I'll fix you up, all right, everything you, everything you don't know about your pastor. And I wasn't exactly sure about the culture of this church, so I was asking folks uh, before the service, I said, what do you call this guy? Do you call him uh, Pastor Hale or Brother Graham or whatever? And somebody said, just knucklehead. So uh, that, that's the kind of regard that he gets around here, so I felt right at home. He introduced me as Dr. Easley. And uh, he can call me that if he wants to, but I'm just Ken to the rest of y'all, right? So I'm very glad to be here. Yesterday when I, um, when I arrived from Memphis, I took two flights. I took a flight from uh, Memphis to DFW, and that was a 30,000 feet in the air flight. And then I took a little 20-minute flight from DFW to Tyler. And I don't know if we got above about 3,000 feet, <laughs> all right? There's a point to that story, This morning, we're going to take a 30,000-foot view of the whole Bible. And uh, when you fly at 30,000 feet, you can see a few of the features. You can see rivers and forests and mountains, but you don't get a lot of the detail. And I know that some of you have been looking at the Illustrated Guide to Biblical History in the FBU. And so for those of you that have been in that study... Uh, this is going to be a kind of overview of that. For those of you that uh, for those of you that haven't been able to be a part of that, this is going to be, I hope, an encouragement for you to dig into the way God's word is laid out in the big picture of things. Uh, you've got some guided notes in your bulletin that's going to be following right along with the, with a PowerPoint here in just a minute. So. I want you to be able to follow along for you to see the story. I got the idea, really, for this presentation, for this book, because I found out as I taught seminary students and others that a lot of folks have knowledge of episodes in the Bible. They know David and Goliath and Noah and the flood and Paul and Silas singing in prison. But the big picture of how we all fit in, how is the story overall laid out, sometimes is a mystery. And so my, my book, The Illustrated Guide, that you'll see referenced, is sort of my attempt at answering that story of how does the Bible fit together as a big piece? Or you might say, how does Christianity fulfill the ancient plan that God promised? And there's an ancient part of the story And y'all, we're part of that story too. We are part of the story that God has put us in. Uh, We are in February 2014. There are two big holidays this month. And we don't know too much sometimes about those two holidays. Y'all know Valentine's coming up? I mean, I know you know it because I saw it in the bulletin here. There's something coming up for the church here. But most of us don't know a thing about St. Valentine and his story. And we don't know how we got into Valentine's being the way it is. And then there's also uh, the President's Day, uh, where we remember uh, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. And again, we need to kind of go back and know how we as Americans fit into the story of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. So what I want to do this morning is really kind of walk us through the story that we're in as God's people. And I want to take as my a kind of keynote text, a verse from Second Peter. A verse from Second Peter, chapter 1 and verse 4. He has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word, for this word from Peter, but also for your word overall. I thank you for my friends here at this church that has Bible right in the middle of their name. And so for your word, we give you thanks today, and I ask that we might learn something, but also be encouraged as we see that we're part of the people of God, that you planned it, you promised it, and now we're in the middle of that story. And it's all because you care for your people. You have a plan for us, and we're in that story. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, you'll see the, the shadow of the cross there. And I, what I want to give you as a very big notion is that the shadow of the cross falls across the Old Testament. And so there is the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament in many ways points forward to its New Testament fulfillment. So is there, there's the shadow, and then the reality comes as we now have Jesus Christ, and we can look backwards, On the cross. And in order for us to, I think, get a good picture on that, I want you to imagine that the Bible is kind of a multi volume book that has six big chapters. That there are six chapters in this story. And we're going to kind of look at the story, the chapters, the six books of the Bible. And I'm using this kind of in a literary sense of I know you know that there are 66 books, but six major stages in the Bible story. But there's a prologue, there's sort of an introduction, and there's an after the story part, the end of the book, tells what happens after earth is over with. So we're going to walk from beginning to end, and I want you to see the prologue first of all. How does the Bible start? How do we get the Bible started? Well, the Bible starts in a quite interesting way, different than every other world religion, The Bible starts by telling us about the need for redemption. We are in need of God intervening in our world, in our lives. And the Bible starts in its first 11 chapters by describing what happens to the entire human race. Everything in Genesis 1 through 11 involves the entire human race. Because God wants to establish for us, the Bible wants to establish for us, how this story gets started. So the need for redemption, Genesis 1 through 11, as you know, the story starts with creation. The first two chapters describe how God created the heaven and the earth, and how God created man and woman, and put man and woman in the perfect place to enjoy him. What happened to 100% of our first parents? There was a fall. We know the story. Adam and Eve blew it there in the garden. And what percentage of our race rebelled against God at that point? Well, 100%, you know, it's 100%, isn't it? All both of them fell and rebelled against God. And God said, you can't be in the garden anymore. There is a curse. And God provided graciously for them a a, a coat to cover their shame. But then the story fast forwards. And do you remember the world multiplied? And the entire world was wicked. And God said, I'm really sorry that I made mankind. And what was the next big story in Genesis? The flood. The flood. And what percentage of the world was evil and rebellious against God? 100%. The whole world was evil. Now, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but he turned out to be pretty much of a rascal after the flood anyway. Do you remember that part? I'm not going to talk about that. that. That's a big that's a detail. But Noah's a rascal. His sons are rascals. And then there's one more story, and that's the story of confused speech. Remember the story of Babel, how God has to scatter our race, and instead of scattering around the world, they came together in order to try and reach God on their own? And so there's three episodes in Genesis that show humanity is a race of rebels against God. 100% of those in the garden rebelled against God, 100% of those in the time of Noah rebelled against God. And 100% of those in the Tower of Babel rebelled against God. And that's the way the story opens. We're a hopeless race. We are rebels against God. We do not choose God. So if there's to be any solution at all, if there's to be any redemption, God has to take the initiative. God must intervene. And that's the story of our Bible. So having established the need for redemption, we're going to move to the the first book, the first chapter in the story. And the first chapter in the story suddenly narrows down from dealing with one, the entire human race, down to one little old couple. Remember that little old couple in Genesis 12? Little old man and a little old lady, Abram and Sarah. And they're minding their own business. And what we start seeing in Genesis 12 is that God is going to take one little man and woman and he's going to build them to a nation through whom he's going to save the world. He's going to send ultimately Jesus. But here we have the beginning of a plan of redemption sorted out. And so God calls Abraham and Sarah. God's going to build his nation. This This is over a thousand years of biblical history. You'll see the text there listed from Genesis 12 all the way into 1st King. And and the motion is upwards. It's building, 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 building. Because God wants to do something extraordinary. But he starts with one man and one woman. The call of Abraham and Sarah. And you might remember that God says, Abraham, I'm going to make my covenant with you. The whole world is going to be blessed by you. And that starts in Old Testament times. And that's a promise. But we as Christians know that that's fulfilled through Jesus, right? Jesus is the one that blesses the whole world. We are here today partly as a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah back 2000 B.C., So the story of redemption starts then with God building his nation. And there is this covenant promising a worldwide blessing. And as you're paying attention, you'll see in your notes, there in bold print and italics, you're going to see some covenants mentioned. God seems to move forward. It's going to be in blue on the the PowerPoint. So there's this covenant promising worldwide blessing. And again, we're flying at 30,000 feet. And so let me fast forward. We're going to fly forward from the call of Abraham and Sarah and how they have a child, who has a child, who has a child. And ultimately then, we move from the Genesis to Exodus, right? And in Exodus, we have the big picture in the Old Testament of redemption. What does redemption look like? Well, the Old Testament people come to understand it. It's being bought out of slavery by a costly price. And the Israelite family comes out of Egypt under the mighty hand of God. There are plagues, there is Pharaoh destroyed, there is crossing the sea, and some of those details you will know about. But that's the big picture of redemption in the Old Testament, is being bought out of slavery by a huge price being paid, the the Passover and the death of the Passover lambs, and so on. So we have the exodus is the great picture of redemption. And then when you move forward into the books that follow that, we have the story of the law and the land. The law and the land. If you're going to have a people anywhere, you've got to have, uh, if you're going to have a nation, you've got, to have, uh, you've got to have people, you've got to have a land, and you've got to have a law. In the American story, we got people first who came to a land, and then finally we got a law, our constitution. Uh, For the Israelites, it worked a little different. They got people first, and then they got the law, the Ten Commandments and the other laws of Moses, and then finally they got their land. You know that Moses was the lawgiver, and Joshua is the landgiver. And the great covenant that belongs to this is the covenant of the law, Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and you'll see that I've called it there a temporary covenant because the book of Hebrews tells us that the old covenant is obsolete, and the Apostle Paul will tell us that the law was intended by God only as a temporary measure until something better came along. Uh, Are any of y'all old enough to remember eight track players in your cars? Y'all remember eight tracks? All right, some of y'all are old enough. I bet none of us have an 8-track anymore, right? We don't because there's something better. And the law is like an 8-track player. And now there's something better. I'm so glad, you know, my sweet little Honda's got a 6-CD changer, and that's a whole lot better than an 8-track player for my purposes. I'm so glad God gave the Israelites law and land. That was a temporary covenant. And so we'll see how that relates to Jesus uh, in the New Testament. There's a temporary covenant of the law. And then we move finally in this building phase to kingship and temple. And again, we've got to fast forward that finally God brings the people into a land, And he brings them into great kings, right? David and Solomon. And there is finally again a place where God's people can worship. They've been kicked out of Eden where the presence of God was. And now the people of God have a temple where the presence of God can be with his people. And the great covenant that belongs to this last step is the covenant promising David that his dynasty will last forever and a son of David will rule. There will always be a son of David. And you know that temporarily, at least, that worked as there were biological descendants of David. But hey, we know who the real son of David is that rules our lives now and will rule forever and ever. So you have kingship and temple. And the way that looks like, if you want to diagram it and look like it, you could see it in the diagram as going from a little dot, Abraham and Sarah, all the way up to a great nation. And the movement is upward. So what's chapter 1? God builds his nation. Can you all say that much? God builds his nation. Say it with me. God builds his nation. What's next? What's next? God educates his nation. God educates his nation. So let's move from chapter 1 to chapter 2. We have God's people and God's place under God's king. And you might remember that our Lord Jesus said the whole Old Testament is summarized in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know what the people of Israel had trouble with? Loving the Lord their God with all their heart and loving their neighbor as themselves. We have that same trouble sometimes too, don't we? They didn't love God as evidenced by their worship of many gods. They worshiped Baal and Asherah and all these horrible gods of the surrounding nations. And they didn't love their neighbors as themselves. They oppressed the widows and the orphans and the foreigners that God had given them instructions about. So God said, I'm going to send you some educators. I don't know. I'm i sure there's some educators here. I'm so glad that God's educators worked and worked and worked until finally, when God wants to teach you something, you'll finally get it. Some of you have probably found that to be true. God's educators were the prophets. And God sent the prophets to say, hey, you guys, you're worshiping idols. Get over it. Hey, you're oppressing the widows and the strangers. And this is 1 Kings 11 to 2 Kings 25, It's Isaiah and the wisdom books and the earlier books of the prophets. And so God sends the prophets, and there are steps that mark the downward fall of the Israelite nation as they refuse to get the lesson. And they keep not getting the lesson. And God keeps sending punishment. He keeps sending the prophets. But the first thing that happens is the great nation is divided in two. And bitterly, the national entity of Israel was divided so that there was a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom. Whoops, back it up one. Yeah. Then the northern kingdom was conquered. And you might remember the northern kingdom was the one that did not have David's dynasty. And so the great superpower of the world, the Assyrians, came. Modern-day Iran, by the way, is Assyria. And the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered. And then finally, tragically, in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered. And the temple was destroyed. The place of God, where God's presence was, was no more. And the people were carried away into captivity. And so the nation that had been great was taken down to nothing. And you can forward the slide now and take it down to nothing. It goes down to nothing, from the great kingdom to nothing. They're in captivity. And the amazing thing that happens in the captivity of the Israelite people is they get over worshiping idols. Our Jewish friends became true to the one true God. And they got over a great deal of their social injustice. And so the education lesson worked. God educates his nation. So what's going to happen after that? So what's going to happen after they get the point? Well, chapter three, chapter 3 tells the story about how God keeps a faithful remnant. God keeps a faithful remnant. It's not quite time yet for Jesus to come. Actually, the Apostle Paul will say in Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. But the world stage isn't quite ready yet for the coming of the Messiah, the one that had been promised first in the Abrahamic covenant and second in the covenant to David. And so God holds on to a faithful remnant, and these are the Bible books of Ezra, through Esther and some of the prophets. And this is a long time. It's more than 500 years. And you know I'm flying because America hasn't been even known. The new world hasn't even been known for 500 years. So this is a long period of God's holding action. He's hanging on to a faithful remnant. And God's at work even though it's kind of quiet. And there is, I think, a kind of lesson for us that sometimes God's working with his people faithfully, and we don't see the action real well. But God's got a plan. And what I hope you'll be encouraged to say is, I'm part of a story where God's had it all worked out, and God knew all along it was going to take, take this long to bring the Messiah, to bring the covenant to fulfillment. So you have, first of all, the return from the 70 years of captivity. So there's, there's a return from captivity... The people are there, and then what God does is he gives them back their land and their law. So the law and the land are reestablished. They're back in the land, or at least a minority are back in the land. Many of, many of the Israelite people stay scattered, but some of them come back, so the land is reestablished and the law is reestablished, and you get stories like Ezra and Nehemiah building the temple, building Jerusalem's walls, and Ezra reinstructs the people in the law. You get a temple built again. And one of the burdens of the Old Testament, later prophets, is get the temple built, get the temple built. And there's a prophecy that says: hey, this second temple is gonna be even greater than the first temple even though it was a small and puny building, Solomon's first temple was all golden and big and expensive, and the second temple was small and puny, but it was greater because Jesus went to it. Jesus went to the second temple, not to the first temple. And there was the real presence of God at the temple. But the Jewish people had their second temple built, and that was the burden of the Old Testament. And then, strikingly, you get a strange little book called Daniel. Now, Daniel's a f- wonderful book. Probably some of our Bible episodes are best known from Daniel. Everybody knows Daniel in the lion's den and, and Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego from that book. But I want to point you to Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and Babylon is actually modern-day Iraq, So, uh, you know, what goes around in history comes back around to us. But Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he has a dream of a four-metal image. And you might remember that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of an image with a head of gold and a chest of silver and a belly of bronze and legs of iron. And what's really, really interesting is that God is using a pagan king's dream that is interpreted by the prophet Daniel to say, here's what the wait's going to look like. Here's what it's going to look like to wait for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the kingdom of God. There are going to be four world empires that are going to rise and fall. And in Daniel's time, that image begins with a head of gold, which is Babylon. Babylon, modern day Iraq, that was the world superpower of its day. And Babylon seemed invincible, but it fell. It fell to the Persians. And actually, by the time you get to the story of Daniel and the lion's den, the Persians have become the world superpower. And so Persia represents the chest of silver, modern day Iran. And then one of the greatest military political figures in the history of the world that God brings to a point of prominence, Alexander the Great. We've all heard of him. Anybody remember World Civ, Alexander in the 300s? And in 33 years, Alexander conquers the known world. And so world power shifts for the first time from Asia and Africa, from Babylon and Egypt to Europe. And the center of the world becomes Greece. And the Greeks take over. And Alexander changes the world. He thinks of a one-world government. He thinks of one-world culture. He thinks of one-world language. And Alexander spreads Greek culture, Greek religion, and Greek language. So that by the time Jesus comes, there's one language spoken by the vast majority of the known world, Greek. And Greek was actually a common language. I know we say it's Greek to me, meaning we can't understand it, but Greek was understood by everybody back then. That was the trade language, just like English is the trade language today. And in the fullness of time, God sent a worldwide language so that when when Christian missions came on the scene, the gospel could go very quickly. I'm grateful for the Greek language, because I've made part of my living teaching Greek. So God's using even a pagan general called Alexander to bring the world stage so that Jesus can come. Now the great covenant here in this period is God's covenant through Jeremiah. Jeremiah promises a new covenant. And the new covenant of Jeremiah, chapter 31, promises forgiveness and a transformed life. So we've seen several covenants. And by the way, do you remember that our Lord Jesus, at the night he was betrayed, when he gives us the Lord's Supper, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant of Jeremiah, Jesus fulfills. So it's all promised in the Old Testament. Well, y'all, say with me chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. If you're taking good notes, you've got it. Chapter 1 is God builds his nation. Chapter 2 is... God educates his nation. Chapter 3, God keeps a faithful remnant. All right, flip the page. Flip the page. Let's move to chapter 4. Chapter 4. By the way, there's the the chart. You see the four-metal image? It's laid laid on its side because that's the stages of history. All right, so there's the four-metal image there. Let's move on. Y'all, I'm used to two hours for teaching, so we may be here till one o'clock. But we're doing good. Y'all hang on. Y'all hang on. I told you, are you doing good? Everybody good on a 30,000 foot view here? All right. So, y'all, we've covered the whole Old Testament in about 20 minutes or so. Let's see what we can do with the New Testament. All right. So, we've seen God builds a nation, God educates his nation, God keeps a faithful remnant. Now, we're moving to God fulfills redemption. God fulfills redemption. All the promises start coming through through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? This is the most important chapter in the book. The life and death of our Lord, where God is about purchasing salvation. You know, the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could never, ever, ever pay for a single sin. Jesus' death bought our salvation. All of those little lambs and goats that were, were slaughtered, they were like swiping a credit card. And when you swipe a credit card, there's still a bill due at the end of the month. The bill was paid when Jesus died. And that's the big chapter where God fulfills redemption. This is the story of the Gospels. And so it's the story of Jesus' life. So we have the account, and you know it, and so I can go through this really, really quickly. We have, first of all, the incarnation and the virgin birth of Jesus. So we have the account of of Jesus' virgin birth. We have the life of Jesus given to us. We have 12 years of childhood, 20 years of obscurity, and 3 years of ministry. And then, of course, it all comes to a crescendo with the crucifixion of our Lord, his resurrection, and his exaltation. And again, we're familiar with the life of Jesus. So what I want to point out here is how in the crucifixion, resurrection, and exaltation of our Lord we have the fulfillment of the covenants that we've been looking at. What they were pointing forward to is focused in on our Lord Jesus. We have the promise of worldwide blessing fulfilled in Jesus. Um, At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, you know the Great Commission passage, don't you? Matthew 28, go make disciples. All nations. And as I'm looking at this congregation this morning, I'm really glad to see a representation of more than one kind of nation in our ethnicity here. The gospel is for all kinds of folks. I hope in heaven I can say y'all, but I don't know. You know, there's going to be Chinese and, 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 uh, and uh, African tongues and uh, other languages. But the promise of a worldwide blessing, we're a part of it. That's why we get, you get to be here, I get to be here in Jackson, Tennessee, enjoying the blessing of God today. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's ancient promise to Abraham. And what about an eternal son of David? Isn't that who Jesus is? And ultimately, y'all, you just got to come back tomorrow night. We're going to look at how that happens in the book of Revelation. And tomorrow night, instead of a 30,000-foot view, we're going to try and take a 3,000-foot view of Revelation. All right, so that's coming up, so i give you that invite. What about the new covenant promise of forgiveness and life transformation? Does Jesus do that? Sure. Every time someone comes to Christ in repentance and faith and becomes a child of God, that life transformation begins. And I hope that you've experienced that. It may be that you have yet to experience that. It may be that you're like, wow, I didn't know that's what Christianity is about. I didn't know what that's what the gospel is about. And maybe today will be a day where you can start that journey. But many of us here, I know, are already on that journey. We, we're new covenant people. And every time that this congregation comes together around the Lord's table, and the pastor, I believe, leads you, and the Lord's table and the cup is the new covenant in my blood. And we remember that new covenant every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And then I would suggest to you, as I've already mentioned, that Jesus in his death and resurrection fulfills in the sense of ending the covenant of the law. All those animal sacrifices are no longer needed. They're all done. Everything's done. So thank God we're no longer under law or under grace. And the grace of God has reached us through the gospel of Christ. All right, well, so how are we going to symbolize chapter 4, God fulfills redemption? The only way I can think of it is a cross. Isn't that the central symbol behind me here? That's what we all know, symbolizing, symbolizing the central um, message of Christianity, the cross of Christ. So what's chapter 4? Can you say that with me? Chapter 4 is... Well, all right, so it was symbolized in the Exodus, right? The children of Israel coming out of slavery. And coming out of slavery is one of the ways in which the gospel describes our salvation. We're no longer slaves to sin, so we get that. Well, what's chapter 5? Five, chapter 5. Let's move to chapter 5. Chapter 5... We're going to say, God spreads the kingdom reality. God spreads the kingdom reality. Jesus' message when he came preaching was, the kingdom of God. Repent, the kingdom of God is here. There's a real kingdom that is here because of Jesus. He preached that message, and that's what we're engaged in right now. That kingdom reality is spreading through churches like this congregation, and my congregation, and I've seen evidence of your mission's involvement in the bulletin, and that's exciting for me to see. Because we're spreading the reality of the kingdom. The real king is not in Washington, D.C. The real king is Jesus. We owe our allegiance to him as our king, our Lord. We've sung to him. We've worshipped him today. And this is the story of Acts and the Epistles, and it begins on the day of Pentecost, and it goes till we don't know when. We don't know when chapter 5 is going to come to an end, but it's going to keep going and keep going. So far, it's been, oh, close to 2,000 years, and it might come to an end this week, and it might keep going for another 2,000 years. We don't know, but we're spreading the word, and that's why God's kingdom reality is represented here in this congregation, and you spread it throughout Jacksonville, Texas, and I spread it throughout Memphis, Tennessee, And sometimes we're a small minority, but we keep spreading that kingdom reality. And that's described in the Bible just in a, in a few quick ways. First of all, we have the beginning of the church in Jerusalem. In the beginning of the church in Jerusalem, what I think is really exciting and different as compared to the Old Testament picture is the Holy Spirit empowers, indwells believers everywhere. It's not, not just the kings and the prophets. It's not just a few people. But it's all God's people have the Spirit of God. And we're all spirit-indwelt people. Paul says in Romans, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. So we're all spirit people. We have the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us. So we're in the new age of the Spirit. The Spirit certainly was a reality during the period of promise, but now... He indwells every believer. So we have the new age of the Spirit. And then Acts and the epistles tell about the expansion of the church. And the expansion of the church is really cool in that we have finally Jew and Gentile as one body of Christ. Now we see the people of God reflect what we would call multi-ethnic groups, multi-racial groups, when you look at the Old Testament, it sure seems like it's just the Jewish folks that get in on the blessings. But now we see, hey, it's us Gentiles too. I'm not sure, but I'm just guessing most all of us here are Gentiles. We're not Jewish. We're not of the original biological line of of Abraham. And boy, am I glad that the kingdom reality is big enough for Gentiles too. And so we have Jew and Gentile. Now that was a wrestle when you read, when you read the epistles, like the, the early Christians wrestle with how do you get these two ethnic groups that don't like each other together in one body of Christ. And we still wrestle with that today. How do we get all sorts of folks into the same body of Christ? I know that's a challenge. Early Christians worked with it. We work with it. But there's only one Church of Jesus Christ around the world. So this congregation here today, we are one expression of the one worldwide body of Christ. I'm so glad there's not an ultimate Jewish church and an ultimate Gentile church, an ultimate white church and an ultimate black church. It's one church. And we're here as an expression of it. And the church expands, and then as we move beyond the epistles, we finally move into church history. Church history. And um, we're not going to talk about church history. What I am simply going to say is we now have in the period of Christian history, a Jewish temple and a Jew- and the Israelite nation are obsolete. Remember the eight-track tape player? Obsolete, not needed anymore. Actually, that's, that reality is pressed upon us and that the temple is destroyed in AD 70. The Romans destroyed the second temple. And from A.D. 70, when the Romans destroyed the second temple, until today, there has not been a temple for the Israelite nation. Why? Obsolete. Now, Bible prophecy folks are going to argue about whether there's going to be a third temple. Just come back tomorrow night, all right? So we'll talk about that. But ultimately, the shadows are gone in the light of Christ's coming. All those old promises are fulfilled. So we live in the bright light of the fulfillment of Christ's promises. So, chapter 5, God spreads the kingdom reality. I'll symbolize that, chapter 5, by two arrows going upward, 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 because that represents both ethnic groups, Jew and Gentile. So that's simply my way of saying visually, hey, God's plan is moving forward. And and I hope you'll see there, I have meant to symbolize that, Those two arrows on the right side go higher than ever the Israelite arrow did. Because what God's doing now through the kingdom reality of his churches around the world is greater than whatever happened in the Israelite nation. Do you all see that this is the chapter we're in? We're stuck in chapter 5 right now. This is our lives. This is where we are. We're spreading the kingdom reality. So what is chapter 5? God spreads the kingdom reality. All right. Well, let me uh, let me, let me uh, wrap it up. Chapter six. Chapter six. One of these days, all the promises are going to be finalized—Old Testament promises and New Testament promises. There's still some promises that God has made to us as His people in the New Testament haven't yet come true. I can just think of one or two. Um, Jesus, in his most famous sermon, the Beatitudes, said, the meek shall inherit the earth. When I look around the world today, the meek don't have the world. The meek get trampled on. And there's coming a day when the meek shall inherit the earth. Someday we shall see God face to face. Someday there shall be a resurrection. And I look forward to that. Uh, I'm old enough now that I need a resurrection body already. And I have to wait for that until Jesus comes back to give us a resurrection. So this is the book of Revelation, so come back tomorrow night. We're going to take a 3,000-foot view or or maybe a 1,000-foot view of Revelation tomorrow night. But now we have God finalizing all his promises. Let me just give you a clue of how I think it kind of works out. In the book of Revelation, first of all, we have an account of what I would call satanic wrath against God's people. Did you know that the devil hates you? Did you know that he's a roaring lion seeking to devour you? And the book of Revelation shows how that continues up until the second coming. He's a roaring lion still, and it sure looks like from Revelation he's going to roar a whole lot more. And there's a lot of scary stuff in Revelation about marks and seals and things like that. But there is certainly evidence in Revelation, but you already know it's true of satanic wrath against the people of God. But you know what? The book of Revelation also shows how there is divine wrath, how there is God's wrath against Satan and evil. And you know who wins in the end? It's not the devil. It's God who wins in the end. And the book of Revelation, although there's some scary stuff in there, sure encourages me to believe that in the end, it's Christ's side that wins. It looks like the devil's side is going to win for a long time. But ultimately, it's Christ's side. It's God's side. And the best that can happen that evil throws out there is a kind of an unholy trinity. We know the holy trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. There's an unholy trinity in the book of Revelation. There's a beast from the sea, the, the Antichrist. There's the beast that comes up from the land, a kind of an anti-Holy Spirit, and then there's this dragon uh, in the book of Revelation, a kind of anti-father. And when you look at Revelation, guess what? All three of them go into the pit. They They all get knocked down to hell. Let's just put it that way. And then Revelation describes part of the end of the story along the lines of last plagues and final exodus hmm, were there plagues before in the Bible? Yep. And when you compare Revelation's plagues and Exodus's plagues, there's some kind of interesting parallels. It sure seems like God's repeating the story again. And even when you get to part of Revelation, you might remember the Israelites sing beside the sea. And in Revelation, you've got the saints of the Lamb singing beside the sea. There's some really cool stuff that parallels well, y'all just come on back tomorrow, all right? Mm-hmm. Revelation, of course, ends with the coming of Christ in glory, the final resurrection. We're looking forward to the resurrection. And then there's a, the martyr rewarded, the, the millennium passage in chapter 20, but ultimately a final judgment. And one of the points of the final judgment passage in Revelation is everybody gets judged. So the challenge is, are you getting ready? Are we ready to face God in judgment one day? Are we ready through Christ so that when we stand before God, uh, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant? Well, y'all, the end of the story is the last two chapters, the epilogue, the epilogue. And the epilogue takes us past human history. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And I like to think of that epilogue, the last two chapters of the Bible, it's kind of like going to a play and seeing the curtain parted a little bit before the play starts. And you know it's going to be a really good play because you can kind of see a few people moving around. There's a set back there. And the curtain parts just a little bit in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And y'all, it's going to be good, it's going to be great. Now, y'all didn't listen quite fast enough. I've run a few minutes more than the preacher told me I could. So thank y'all for hanging with me. What I want you to see is it's going to be really, 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 really good. It's going to be better, the final new heavens and the new earth, than ever Jerusalem was under David and Solomon with the temple. And so the first bright star there represents the building of the Israelite nation, but it was only a dim glimmer of what will be in forever and ever and ever. And y'all, we're part of that story. That's our story. So, I want you to think about what I've said this morning. How does this relate to you? I want you to think for just a minute. Is, is there something that has been encouraging for you? Is there something that you're like, I never knew that before? Or maybe you need to just thank God for your place in the story this morning. You say, God, thank you that this big picture is my story too, and I'm part of it, and I'm looking forward to being in part of chapter 6. Or maybe you just need to know you're part of chapter 5, where the kingdom of reality is spreading. You need to be faithful here in Jacksonville, Texas. So I'm going to pray, and just invite you to reflect for a moment, and then we're going to sing one more time. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you for this church, for its commitment to you, to your word. And I ask that you would take the words of this message that have been, I know, in many ways inadequate as a way to tell again your wonderful story. But Lord, I ask that you would encourage the people of God here to see how they are the people of the promise. That the reality is here, that we're spreading the kingdom reality. And Lord, maybe there's somebody here that just needs to come into the kingdom today. And I ask that your spirit would be present with us as we conclude this worship time. In Jesus' name, amen.